Uh, I don't know if you can remember a time in your life. I was thinking about this this week, just in light of Romans 14 and, and kind of thinking about this idea of, of people quarreling over secondary issues. And, uh, I was, I guess, running through different times in my life where I've had different arguments, not like bad knockdown drag out type arguments, but like where you're debating someone on an issue or something and you walk away and you're just like, how can they not see this? Like, this is so obvious and how are they missing it? Right? Have you ever had that where you, I see a lot of faces, like everybody looks at their spouse like, yes, I have done that before. And so that kind of like where you're like, I just don't know how they can see it or the, how they cannot see it. It seems like this is so clearly true. And and I was kind of just thinking through about that. And then uh, about Wednesday, I think I opened a book, a new book that I was starting to read. And, and right there in the introduction, I'm just going to read to you this paragraph. This is, all this is running through my mind. It says, uh, and it's the very essence of our sin nature that so often causes the truth to be hidden from us. Mark McMinn, a Christian psychologist, rightly points out that humans have a natural tendency to see others as sinners and wrong while we see ourselves as right. And if we get into an argument with a friend or a spouse, we cannot understand how the other person cannot see our viewpoint. Our sin nature generates pride, which makes us unable, unable to see how we have contributed to the problem, it is always someone else's fault. And I read that, and I'm going to confess, I read that and went, oh, that's why they're wrong. It's their pride. (laughs) How easy it is to continue to be like, oh, yeah, well, they're just really prideful, and that's why they can't see that I'm right. But it's like we all do that. It's our pride kind of sneaks in, and we, we start to kind of think through uh, we only see it from our vantage point. And, and then those kind of strands of pride get into everything. And it makes us certain we're right. And we start to, uh, as we talked about last week in this passage, we then start to judge other people and we start to look down on them and we insist on our way and we continue to push being right. And so it's an issue that we see all in our culture today. Uh, sadly, it's made its way into church at different times on secondary issues, but it's nothing new. It's exactly what Paul's writing about in Romans chapter 14. The church there, they're arguing and they're dividing and they're quarreling over secondary issues. And so if you were with us last week, as we started in Romans chapter 14, we talked about the issue they were dividing. Most likely they were dividing over was uh, eating certain things that were, go back to the Old Testament, the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. And some believers were still holding to that. And they were believing they can't eat certain foods because it would make them unclean or ritually unclean. But the clear teaching in the New Testament and even what Paul says here, and we'll look at it in the second half of chapter 14, he says that in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. And so the teaching in the New Testament is those cleanliness laws that they held to and what they were eating and not eating in the Old Testament no longer pertain to New Testament believers because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law. And so we are not clean or unclean by what we eat, but by what Jesus has done for us. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was just teaching them about how they approach a holy, righteous God. But now Jesus is the way in which we approach him. And so we're talking about that differentiation within the church in the first century and how some are looking down on others and they're dividing and in their pride, they're fighting over these things and judging each other. And that's what's happening in the church. And Paul's saying, don't do that anymore. Lay that down. We're not called to live in this way. And so we got to the end last week. And we talked a little bit about how the gospel rescues us from this, seeing our identity in Jesus and what he's done for us is, is the solution to all these problems. And so we're going to pick up with that today as we look at the second half 
of chapter 14. And as we do, there's a couple things, a couple ways I want us to look at it. First, there's two things that he talks about that we need to lay down, that we need to stop doing, that we need to cease from, uh, just lay down and not be doing anymore. And so we're going to start with the two things he's calling us to lay down. And then secondly, in verse 19, he says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And so the second half, we're going to think about what we then pursue for peace and mutual upbuilding. So what we need to stop and what we need to pick up or what we need to pursue. But as we do that, and as we walk through that together, I want us to practice our gospel fluency. And something we talk about here at Coda, if you've been around for any amount of time, we talk about this idea of gospel fluency. Uh, we use that language saying being fluent in the gospel. You know what it means to be fluent in English. I think all of us here are English's first language. We're fluent in the language. You can understand what I'm saying with very little thought because we're used to it and we can say, we can speak in that way. The same is true. We want to, as we grow as disciples of Jesus, to be fluent in the gospel. That is the good news of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. We want to apply it to every area of our life. We want it to stand over everything. We want to let what God says about who we are and what he's done for us and the way he loves us and now how we are called to walk, that that would be over everything that we do. And so we want to be able to see the areas in our life when we're not believing that that's true and then lovingly remind one another of what is true of us in Jesus to good news one another. That's what the gospel means. And so we want to be fluent in speaking the good news to each other, reminding each other of what is true of us in Jesus. And so as we go through this, the things that we need to lay down, I want us just to think about how the gospel comes to bear. I want us to practice our gospel fluency together. And so if that's a new idea or you haven't heard us talk about that before, I'll give you just real quick example. Um, Last night, uh, Quinn comes into my room. Quinn is my 10-year-old. Uh, to get his clothes that Joanna had washed for him. And she says, here's your clothes. You need to take these upstairs. And he goes, oh, he grumbles, complains, whatever. She gives him his clothes. And then she says, oh, and by the way, here's three of Jed's things. Take those up with you. And he's like, but Jed never takes my clothes up. He's never done that. And Joanna's like, yeah, I think he has. Name one time Jed has ever taken my clothes. Like, he turns into a little lawyer. Like he knows this is not, I'm not doing this. I don't have to. He's not done it for me. And I, I'm in the bathroom and I hear him like he's in this little rant of, I don't, I shouldn't have to do that. He wouldn't do that for me. And I walked out and I just said, Quinn, like, can you think of something that God's done for us that we didn't deserve? And he went, oh, uh, you mean, you mean like Jesus dying for us? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. And I said, so maybe if, if you took your brother's clothes up for him, even though he doesn't deserve it, you would be showing him what Jesus is like. And he kind of, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. He kind of grumbled <laughs> and he, he headed for the door with it. But then as he walks out the door, he goes, by the way, Jed knows Jesus already. <laughs> it was like, he's got some work to do on our gospel fluency. But, but the point is like going to the heart issue that's behind his rebellion rather than just saying, just do it because I said so. And, and by the way, there's times when we say, just do it because your mother told you to and you're supposed to honor your father and mother, go put it up. That's the end of the discussion. But there's opportunities at times to go to work on the heart issue that's underneath it. And so we want to practice our gospel fluency. I want to remind him of who he is in Jesus and what it means to show people what Jesus is like. That's what it means to glorify and so we want to be practicing that 
together in all things. And so as we go through this, we're going to kind of come back to that a couple of times. All right. But let's start first with what we need to lay down, what he tells us to, to cease with here. And so the first thing, verse 13, he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And so I just want to start with that first half of verse 13, to not pass judgment on one another any longer. And we talked a little bit about this last week. He says it in verse 4. He says it in verse 10 of this chapter. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? He keeps coming back to this idea. So the third time now, uh, one of those important rules of, of how you study the Bible, the things that are repeated are really important. And so he's repeated himself multiple times here, telling us not to judge others. And so, but we want to put this in the context of what he's talking about. The judgment he's talking about is judging other people's motives as they're seeking to honor the Lord. Because remember, some are not eating and some are eating. And he's saying, if those that are not eating these things and you have the freedom as the stronger brother, you understand the theology that you are free to eat all things. If your brother is trying to honor God by not uh, eating, he says, don't judge them. Don't stand in judgment over them, judging their motives. Because when you do, when you step into that place, and I think you see this in verse 10 and following in what we looked at last week, but when you do, you're assuming the place of God. You're assuming to know their motives and what they're doing and why they're doing it, and now you're placing yourself in God's place. You're taking that place, and you're beginning to think about it, uh, standing in judgment over your brother and sister. Now, I said this last week, but it's important dis- distinction, and so I'll say it again this week. That doesn't mean that as brothers and sisters in faith, if we call each other to repentance with a sin issue, that is not standing in judgment over your brothers and sisters. That's discipleship and seeking to be obedient together. And so if your brother and sister in the faith is doing something that you know the Bible clearly does, uh, tells us not to do, right? Like if, if your friend who confesses, professes to be a believer and you have a friendship and they say, oh, I found this great loophole on my taxes. I'll never get caught. It's going to get me a lot more money. You don't just say, well, I'm not going to stand in judgment and I'm not going to say anything. You say, well, that's no, that's not following the law and we're not honoring God in our finances and we're not doing the things that the, uh, the law clearly tells us. You can't do that. You should say that to one another. We should be calling each other to faithfulness. And so that's not what he's saying when he's saying uh, don't stand in judgment. It's not the way our culture would define it. Our culture would define it as I can do whatever I want as long as I feel that way and you can't tell me any different. But as brothers and sisters in the faith, we are called to call each other uh, to greater faithfulness, to the things that God clearly tells us. But here in this passage, the distinction here is both brothers in the faith or sisters in the faith are seeking to honor God and what they're doing is not sin. They're, they're not eating, may not be enjoying the fullness of the freedom they have in Jesus, but they're not sinning. They're seeking to honor God. And he says, in that case, don't stand in judgment over them. Don't take that place of God where you're deciding to know what their motives are and what's happening and you stand, step into that place. And so it's important for us to be reminded of that. And so he tells us to lay that down. But if you think about how the gospel comes to bear on that, what is the heart issue that leads us to want to judge other people, to stand in judgment, to take that place that we don't, uh, that is God's alone? It's, it's that we've forgotten that God is in control. We're trying to control everything around us. We're trying to take the place of like, no, I'm going to be the judge and jury and I'm going to put these things right. 
And what we're saying here and what Paul's argument is, you don't have to do that. Lay that down. You're not to be the judge. God alone is the one who judges. And so you can cease from doing that. And so as I was thinking about just that idea of stopping uh, taking the place of God, right? Because what happens when you put yourself in that and you try to control things, you try to take uh, the reins away from God, you're, you're putting yourself in a place that you're never supposed to be. And it's always going to end with negative emotions and issues and problems with it. And so I was thinking about uh, a story I've heard for years about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great reformer out of the Protestant Reformation, had a good friend named Philip Melanchthon. And Philip was uh, also part of the Protestant Reformation, a great theologian. He and Martin Luther were really good friends. But Philip worried all the time. He was just constantly worried. He was worried about the Reformation. He was worried about what would happen. He often would say to Martin Luther, maybe we should just, you know, kind of give up on this whole thing and go live in the hills and we'll be safe. And and so he was always kind of worried about things. And so the story goes that Martin Luther at different times with his friend Philip would look at him and he would say, let Philip cease to rule the world. He'd say, just, just let it go. Right. Let God be God. And he's got this and you don't have to be in control. And he would always remind his friend, let Philip cease to rule the world. And I'd say the same thing for us when we get into that place of judgment and I'm making assumptions about why people are doing what they're doing. Let God rule the world. He's got it. He is the judge. You don't have to be. And so you can lay that down. And so the first thing he tells us is to not pass judgment on one another any longer. But then if you look at the second half of the verse, he says, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And so he tells us not to be a stumbling block. And then look at what he says in verse 14 and 15. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is aggrieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. And so he tells you, right, uh, remembering the context from last week, that some were eating and some were not eating. Some are abstaining from certain things because their conscience isn't clear. And he says, in that case, don't make this an issue. Don't flaunt your freedom, which you have the right to have. You, they were, he does call them the stronger brother, the one that can eat all things, that their conscience is clear. But he says, if your conscience is clear and they are uneasy with it, don't antagonize them with that. Don't continue to put it in front of them. Don't continue to press your freedom in front of them that that's not helping them and it's not doing good. And, and in fact, in verse 15, he says, uh, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. And by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's pretty harsh language, right? He says, you do that, it could lead to their destruction. And so I want you to think about Paul's uh, reasoning here. Because on the surface, you read that, and you're kind of like, what's the big deal? Right. If you push this on your friend and you say, hey, it's fine eat that. It's not a big deal. Right. It's not a sin issue, is it? I mean, we're eating food that's fair to eat. That's that's not a sin to eat. But he makes a big deal about it. He says, don't do that because you could destroy the one for whom Christ died. And I want you to think through his reasoning why he says that. If you continue to kind of flaunt your freedom. You continue to argue over this thing that their conscience is not clear of, right? And so this person's like, I don't know. 
In the Old Testament, they didn't eat this. I don't feel comfortable. I don't want to do it. My conscience isn't clear, but you continue to push on them. What you're doing over time is you're encouraging them to act against their conscience. You're nurturing in them a hardness of heart, right? In the Bible, it talks about hardness of heart being where you're no longer operating in faith. Your conscience is telling you one thing and you ignore it and do it anyway. And he says, if you're discipling them in the church together, you're helping them go against their conscience. What you're actually doing is you're, you're planting seeds of a hardness of heart that could lead to a faithfulness that will ultimately lead to destruction. And so it's a pretty serious charge that he tells us there. And so he's telling us that this is really important. And if you look in verse 14, he says, I'm persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself in, in the Lord Jesus. But then the second half of that verse, he says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And he says, so the person whose conscience is bound, don't force that on him. He says the same thing in verse 23. But whoever, da- whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so think about his argument and the way he's saying it. <clears throat> Even if the issue itself is not sin, right? The eating is fine. doesn't matter. But because their conscience is bound, where they are in their uh, discipleship and their sanctification and their understanding, they're going, no, 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 I don't think I should do that. And he says, if you are getting them to betray the faith that they have at that moment, you're causing them to sin. So don't do that. Lay that down. And so if you follow his reasoning through, it's really important that we see that he's calling us to kind of give up some of our freedoms for the good of those around us. Instead of being right for the sake of being right, you want their best. And so often that's hard because our pride kind of leaps up and we go, but I am right. Uh, Right? Because he says the weaker and the stronger brother here, the stronger one is the one that understands they can eat all things. And so theologically speaking, they're correct. And so it's easy for us to kind of get into that. But then when we cross over to a place where we're pushing that on someone who's not there, we're no longer loving them. And so I was thinking about it. Uh, maybe this helps clarify it. If you've ever been around uh, preteen, teenager, middle school, that adolescent age, right? Like developmentally in that age, everyone is looking at them in their mind right? Everyone is staring at them. Everyone is worried about what they're, right? They can, it's the only way they can see it. And as you, as an adult or as a parent who's gone through that, you're like, nobody's looking at you. <laughs> really not. It's okay. But they don't know that. And developmentally, they can't even get there. And so you have a choice of like, am I going to press this? They're not looking at you. Get over it. I'm right. I'm right in saying that. I'm right to tell my kids when they were struggling with those kind of things that, right? Like, just get over it. It doesn't matter. But where they are at that moment, they can't see that. And so there comes a point where if you're so pressing so hard, just get over it, that I'm not actually loving them anymore. I'm being right for the sake of being right. They're not even going to be able to see it right now. And so there's a point where it steps back, where we cross that line. Instead of loving them, I'm being right for the sake of being right. And it's so easy for us to cross that line because technically speaking, you are right. It's true. This is a truth, right? Like the same thing with the food here. It's okay for you to eat it. There's nothing wrong with it. 
But if their conscience is bound, you love them and you lay that down. And so he tells us to lay down that don't be a stumbling block. Don't continue to push on them in that. And he talks about the seriousness of it leading to their destruction. It it makes me think of something else Paul writes. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He's writing to Timothy, verse 19, he says to Timothy that you should hold faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, right? By rejecting the things that your conscience is bound and continuing to go, that's a downward spiral real quickly that will end in the shipwreck of your faith. And so he says, don't plant those seeds. Don't do that. Right, Because what what he's saying here, in other words, is if you reject a good conscience and you begin to act against what you know to be right, that is an act of unbelief and that can end up in your destruction. And so it's pretty important what he's saying here, even though it seems like a very secondary thing because it's not even technically an issue of sin itself. But he says, be careful with their conscience. Continue to love them where you are. In fact, he says it's so serious. If you look at what he says right there at the beginning of chapter 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then he does what we're talking about with the the gospel fluency. He roots it in Jesus and who we are in him, right? Verse three, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Right? He says, just as Jesus did for you, that he died to himself and he did for you what you could never do. So you too bear the failings of the weak. He roots it in your identity in Christ. He goes back to the gospel fluency and everything. And so he calls us to not judge others and not be a stumbling block by insisting on our freedom. But then if we think about verse 19 here, and he says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Right? If we're to say, well, what do we pursue then? And I think part of the way, and it's another way to say this, but kind of from the other side, is we die to ourselves and we want to seek the best of others first. And, and when I think about that, it, it becomes uh, a distinction of your priorities, putting them in the right order. Right? If you, you are the stronger brother in this argument, whatever that is, you see the fullness of the gospel, your brother or sister doesn't, and they're not quite there yet. You have the truth. You have a fuller understanding. That's a good thing. You're stronger in your understanding. But if you then say, I'm right, and I'm so sure that I'm right, I'm going to quarrel, and I'm going to divide, and I'm going to continue to assist on my own way, then you've gotten your priorities wrong. If if you want to be right more than you want to love the people that you're, you're around, that's where the dividing line becomes. And so when we get those out of order, it causes all sorts of issues. And it's easy for us to slip into that because our heart is deceptive. And we can even kind of uh, say it like, I'm going to be loving by showing them how wrong they are. I've got the truth here and they don't. And so if I really love them, I'm going to make sure they see the truth. Well, yes and no, right? This secondary issue that's not an issue of sin, if you press that to the point that you're not actually helping them see it, you've kind of cut off your nose to spite your face. Like it doesn't actually help anything. And so what he's talking about here is is loving them and dying to yourself and kind of reordering uh, your priorities a little bit. Augustine used to talk about how one of the very early church fathers about how all sin flows out of uh, misordered loves is the way he would say it. 
that if we love certain things that are good things, but we love them as ultimate things, that's idolatry. And as soon as we misorder them, it causes all sorts of issues. So for example, it's good uh, to care about your job and to work really hard at your job and want to do it well. But if you begin to love and care about your job more than you love and care about your family, you have misordered those loves and it will cause problems. The same is true if you, you love your family. It is a good thing to love and care for your family. We are called to do that. That is a good thing. But if you love and care for your family more than you love God, again, you've misordered those things and that will cause problems. And so the same thing here. If you care so much about being right and telling everyone how wrong they are and how right you are, but you're not loving the person, then you've misordered the things. And it's going to cause all sorts of issues. You're going to bind their conscience in a way that they're not there yet. You're going to sear their conscience. You're going to lead them to not acting in faith, as he talks about here. And it causes all sorts of problems. And so the first thing we want to pursue is pursuing their best over ourselves. And again, I'll go back to the same thing with the gospel fluency because that is what God has done for us in Jesus. He's given up all his rights for our good and he comes and lays down his life for us and then does what we can't do for us. And so we are called to do the same, to put others first, to love them in the way that Jesus has loved us. But then as we do that and as we think about the reordering of those things and getting them in the right order, I want us to think about what that actually looks like, what we're pursuing And so look at what he says in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so think about the context here. The kingdom of God is not being about these secondary things and fighting over them, eating and drinking, what you can eat and what you can't, what you can drink and what you can't. He says, but no, it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so he calls us to this idea of mutual upbuilding. And that word there is the idea of edification, that we're growing in our discipleship, that we're helping each other grow in holiness and our understanding of who we are in Jesus. We're reminding each other of what is true in Christ, that that's what it means to upbuild one another in the way he's talking about it here. And so when we think about what that looks like and what he's calling us to, we want to remind and encourage and point one another to who we are in Christ. So instead of being up here kind of on the surface with you can eat or you can't eat and we're arguing over that, let's instead point each other to what is true of us in Jesus and continue to pursue him. Instead of the surface issues that the way it gets played out, let's go to the heart issues and seek to honor God in everything because that's what ha- that, that's where the problem lies. And so here, when we talk about what he's calling us to and what we want to be doing as we seek the Lord together, it's not quarreling over opinions. It's not like getting lost in the minute details that aren't an issue of sin. And it's not that important. We want to continue to remind each other of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And all those other things will take care of themselves. When we're truly seeking to honor God in everything, those things get kind of pushed to the background, right? It, it makes me think of the old uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus hymn, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and all the things of the world will grow strangely dim, right? Suddenly, whether you eat or you don't eat this, who cares? We're going to continue to pursue Jesus together and love him and make him the central thing in our life. And then those things kind of fall by the wayside. And so when we really seek to practically pursue peace and mutual upbuilding, we're going to the heart issues to remind each other of who we are in Jesus, that we're we're putting those in the correct order. 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing, we'll we'll end with this this morning. But in doing so, when we do this, what he's telling us to do, we lay down the judging, we lay down the stumbling blocks, we die to ourselves. we seek to put others first, uh, we start to kind of walk that way. What happens as we do that? And and I think it's part of what's so important in this this section here in in chapter 14, right? Because at the beginning of 14, he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, right? He says, welcome them in and walk this out together and continue to do it. And there's an important part of, of community in this that he's calling us to. But as we do all those things, what happens is you seek to die to yourself. You know what happens? It's really hard. And I'm, I don't say it jokingly. It's hard in the sense of like, you're going, well, well, I'm right. And he doesn't even see the whole thing. And why should I die to myself? And what happens is it brings this thing in your heart that you suddenly realize like, man, this is difficult. It's hard to die to yourself. It's hard to love people the way Jesus loves you. But you know what happens when you pursue him in that and you continue to do what he's telling you to do here? You realize that you can't do it on your own and it turns you to increase your faith and I have to rely on Jesus all the more. And he uses that in you as you're walking. And so God uses us in our relationship together, whether it's the weaker brother with the stronger brother, the stronger brother with the weaker brother for us to grow together. And so it's not just you dying for yourself to help show them and so they would grow, but you dying to yourself is showing you how you need Jesus all the more. And God uses both of that on both sides for us to grow in righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. And we recognize that I can't do this in my own strength. And we recognize how quickly it is my flesh that's getting in the way. And you recognize how your your heart gets revealed in that. And suddenly you see the importance of walking those things together. And so I just want you to think about all of this in the light of this chapter. If we divide... We go with a secondary issue that's not even that important. And somebody goes, well, I believe this. And the other person says, I believe this. Well, fine, I'm going that way. And you go that way. It stunts our growth. If we never come together and talk about those things and point each other to what's going on in our heart and why do I feel so strongly about this and why do I get upset and why do I want to be right? Because the answer to all those questions comes back to our relationship with the Lord and what Jesus has done for us. I want to be right because I want to prove that I'm good and smart and I've got it together. Well, guess what? God already loves me completely and totally in Jesus. And I can rest in him and I can lay that down. I don't have to be right. When I want to judge people, I'm not the judge and I get to lay that down. And in every single one of those, if we trace them back, they'll find their ends in Jesus and what he's done for us. And so it's so important that we don't divide over these things, but we continue to seek the Lord together, that he uses us. He uses one another for us to be uh, grown into what he has for us. And we kind of short circuit that when we don't. And so I just want us to, as, as we end, to think about how we do that. How do we enter into relationships, even with people that we don't fully agree with, particularly on secondary issues? How do we seek the Lord together, seek to understand and remind one another of what is true in Jesus? And I would just say to you, we have to be in relationship together for that to happen. Otherwise, it's just you go your separate ways and we don't have that. 
And so we as the church are called to be in unity in Jesus and those things. And so let us pursue that in all things. So pray with me. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel that you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so I pray that you would remind us daily of those areas where we forget that, where pride and arrogance slips in and we start to make our identity about what we do rather than what you've done. I pray that you would help us to rest in your finished work. I pray that in those areas where our pride wells up, that you would continue to remind us how you have saved us by no doing of our own, that your grace would continue to shape and mold us, that you would point us back to our identity in you. Uh, We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the ways you continue to pursue us. And we pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.